1: Hello, my name is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, host of the Feel Better Live More podcast, where I give you simple tips on things like improving sleep, energy, and gut health that will leave you feeling happier and calmer. The podcast is brought to you by JW Marriott. Travelling can really take its toll on the body, but inspired by the principles of mindfulness, JW Marriott is designed to let you focus on feeling whole. With more than 90 hotels in the world, visit jwmarriott.com for more information.
2: 108.
0: This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, this is Nina, the host of the Nina Calza Show. Make sure you listen to my podcast where I cover every Liverpool Premier League game The wins, the draws, the losses, I'm not going to lie, we don't have an awful lot of those. Good things are happening with Liverpool Football Club and you can listen to this podcast, just search for the Anfield Index podcast on ACAST, on Apple Podcasts or any other provider you listen through. So join me as I cover all of Liverpool's Premier League games on Anfield Index. Thank you so much for listening. ACAST is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST.com
1: Busy being black means we refuse to let wherever we come from define where or how far we can go in life. This is just one of the lessons I was reminded of in my conversation with Bissi Alimi, the activist and angelic troublemaker behind the Bisi Alimi Foundation. Bissi was born in Lagos in 1975 and came to international attention when he became the first ever person to come out on Nigerian television. His life since has been a veritable whirlwind, but as I learned in our conversation, the very moments that might have broken others became the moments in which he found his strength, an ability he says lies within all of us. I caught up with Bissy in his airy and light filled loft in South London, and so at times in this conversation, you'll be able to hear the hustle and bustle of London in the background. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Bissy Alimi. The angelic troublemaker <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know where that comes from
1: I don't know where it comes from
2: that was inspired by being rusting really yeah and it's um, one of his speech when he said when he, he said we need in every bay and community a group of angelic troublemakers
1: I had no idea. You know, he's my idol. I have his. I know because in my you
2: you 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 shared his his works with me, yeah. his, his writings and everything, <laughs> and um, it was from there that I realized that I have to be an angelic troublemaker.
1: And what do you think angelic troublemaker means? What does it mean for you?
2: Yeah I, I like for you at the end of it because it's a personal thing mm-hmm. and um and every time I talk about it and I go around and I give talk about how I became one I, I didn't even realize that I was one you know all my life I've been a victim um when I came out I came out as a victim when I attempted suicide I did that as a victim when I look at my sexuality, I did that as a victim. And when I came here and I I look at myself and I situate myself as a black man, as a black gay man, I was doing that as a victim because I was reacting to the forces that were against me. And it was um, when I came in in contact with Brian Rustin and trying to understand what he was trying to say, that I realised that, oh, all this while that I've been a victim, I've actually been asserting my power, asserting myself, I've been in control and um, I was never a victim and so that became the, for, the first point of me being an angelic troublemaker, you know, having to go back in time and saying that when I was coming out, I was challenging the status goal I was saying things shouldn't be this way, I was not giving up though I do not understand what I was doing and mm. I couldn't contextualize it in times of being an activist or being an angelic troublemaker but I was setting the standard for conversation I was setting the pace I was still not so much reacting to things but I was becoming the discussion in a way and that for me means that I moved people from where they were very comfortable to where they ought to be and pushed them to say things or challenge things or get angry at things that otherwise they will care uh, they will not care about, and so for me, that is what being an angelic troublemaker is you know trying to nudge people, trying to push people, and i sometimes I do it in a way that will make people reason with me, and sometimes I do it in a way that I want people to question even people that are very close to me. I question why are you my friend and Why are you hanging around me? And sometimes a lot of my friends get angry at that. But it's about the fact that when everything else fails, you know why you're my friend. And you can justify that. So when I transport that into activism, why are you a black activist? Is it because it's funky? Is it because Black Panther is out? Why would you go to the cinema to see Black Panther and write about it? Because if you don't have a conviction of purpose, you can easily get tossed away in the wind mm. of many opinions. So for me, that is what it means. And I'm going on tour and trying to share that story, but also making people realize that the world is completely fucked. And the only people that can change the world are the angelic troublemakers.
1: Yeah, you know, I was having a conversation with someone about activism and about taking up the mantle and how exhausting that can be
2: It is very exhausting. Um, It is very exhausting. You look at it from your mental health perspective, you know, because you're constantly in a state of rage. Things are not going well, and you are always reacting to it. So it affects your mental health, in a way. Um, Activism doesn't pay. And so you you can't... If you live in a Western world, you can't pay rent, you can do a lot of things. A lot of times I don't get paid, hence why you know I made it a decision not to go speak anywhere where there's nothing in it for me Mm -hmm. um, because I can energize people with my story but who is energizing me and that I also have to take care of myself Um, you know it's a very very complicated state of mind to be Mm. and a position to be and other people don't understand it because again you question yourself like for example there are different um, understanding of an activist. There are just people that will love you for what you're doing and there are just people that will question you from what you're doing. And sometimes the people that will question you and hate you for what you're doing are people that are very close to home. They're even members of the communities and that on its own creates a level of self-doubt for you and makes you question yourself and you know, and then you have your loved ones around you that don't really have time to spend with you because you're always on the move. You're always... So it's highly demanding that a lot of people just think, oh, yeah, it's fun, and these people call themselves activists uh, and let me get on with my life because they can, they can fix the shit and I can just make some money and get on with it.
1: I ask because, you know, this proximity to injustice, the proximity to ignorance is so magnified, I think, if you are an activist. I, I imagine, and for me at least, it becomes, there's a, like a disheartening feeling that creeps up a lot that has to really be wrestled with. And so I wonder if there's advice as someone who's really on the front lines for those who are not on the front lines but are dealing with those microaggressions and those injustices and those barriers they come up against in their everyday life.
2: You know what, what? What I learned about, humans have been about three, four years ago, is to know that there is another world, and it's not one that I will create and say, "Oh, another world is possible." Yes, another world is possible, but there is another world outside of the madness that the world operates in, and that world is a world of love. It's a world of understanding. It's a world of compassion. It's a world of fun, and I try to go there once in a while and you know learn to do what I love to do. Um, I do my crazy things, I do stupid things um, because they they help to balance things up in a way. And you know when you face a lot of macroaggression and you know whether because you're a woman or because you're a person of color or because you're disabled um, um, it, it could weigh you down because, again, it's not just about that microaggression that you're facing, but the process of you trying to explain in your head mm-hmm. that what you're facing is microaggression, is is sexism, is racism, is homophobia, is tribalism. It it because you know most of the time you live in a society like Britain where people are extremely polite with their bigotry, and then the onus is on you to prove to yourself and to people like you that what you're going through is actually an act of prejudice and that is even worse Mm -hmm. than you know trying to confirm it in the first place because like is this real is this not real and my advice to people is that deal with it in the moment but don't hang on to it too much um and the reason why we hang on to it too much is because we don't learn to deal with it in the moment. And so when an incident happens, instead of calling out who and who are involved in a lot of us will go away, spend a lot of time thinking about it and you know, trying to figure it out and that kind of like Practically just mess us up. So when I see something that is wrong, I call it out And if later on I find out, oh, maybe I've called it out and it's not the right way for me to come I don't really stress myself because it's there. I have to react to it. I do a lot of self-care as well
1: What does self-care look
2: like for you? You know, self-care for me is um, Dressing up as, <laughs> as, as, as a drag queen mm-hmm. and doing my makeup um, or just playing music at home and dancing, catwalking, taking pictures, cooking, or sometimes just being quiet and not wanting to see anyone, take, take time off all social media, not post things, not read things, lie on my sofa, read books, or just don't do anything. It depends on how I'm able to you know, take myself, sometimes spend a lot of time in the gym, um, or write, And I I realized that this had the moment that are for me, Um, 90% of the time, most of the time, are for all the issues that I'm passionate about, but not for me. And so it's about learning to do things for me. I'm pushing away everything that is toxic, toxic, you know, anything that anyone, I, I tell people I move away from friendship easily as much as I get into friendship. Um, and it's not because I'm a sad person, but because I've got to protect me. Mm. And if someone is my friend and is not making life easy for me, then that person doesn't deserve to be my friend. So I know those things that I need to do to make my own life um, comfortable outside of the chaos that I operate in.
1: That really comes from you know, this idea of self-care, I think, requires a level of self-worth. And realizing that we are worth these moments—not even just as activists, but as human um, beings—and particularly as queer men—and you know, our the the way the way we date has changed, the way we meet each other has changed, ostensibly the way we interact with each other has changed a great deal. And so, I think there has been a a diminishing of our humanity. Mm. So, this self-care. I think only really comes about once we kind of understand that we deserve to take care of ourselves
2: you have to get to a level of self-awareness and you know it is a it is a journey that you go through that you come to a position and you say to yourself that you're worth every moment every second in a day and and for that reason, you are going to do what is good for you. Mm-hmm. And and I, I I said once that my activism is personal, and it's also part of my self awareness because I know that my activism is personal. Though it transcends me, um, but it starts with me, and in that way, I'm able to understand how to put my energy into it, and how to also pull my energy back Mm. Um, so in that way i know that when i speak about racism I'm speaking out against racism as a black man who has experienced racism and so i can talk about it i can express it i know how it feels and i know how to engage with a particular racist and how to say you know what you are a menial racist i do not have your time and i'm not going to give you platform or when I talk about homophobia, or when I talk about so many other issues that I'm very passionate about, and um, so there's that level of that awareness that I have. I mean, it didn't come easy, and it's not going to come easy to a lot of people. Um, but when it comes, it is uh, always a beautiful experience, you know, an experience to to say that not today Satan it's not just a word mm. not today Satan it's not just a word it's very much about you know what I could have replied you but I wouldn't because I'm more than you mm. because I know my myself worth. because I know that replying to you is giving you a platform that you do not deserve mm-hmm. and I will not give you that opportunity and you know I remember when someone came to attack me online and I said sorry Come back tomorrow, I don't have your time today I've, if you still have time, come back tomorrow and wow. then I'll come back to you and I will not and he went on and on and said, no, I'm not going to engage with you today because you're not on my radar for today. I have something else. I have someone else to deal with wow and for me, it's very much about saying I know it's hard because you, you don't have a timetable to deal with racism. You don't have a timetable to deal with homophobia. You don't have a timetable to deal with xenophobia when you're a black gay immigrant. Mm. You know, Mm. it's not easy. And these are things that you face everything. But you also have to say, you know what? I cannot fight all of these battles every second of a day. And I will choose my priority as I feel with, like deep inside of me. And that is very important. And also because I suffer from a lot of anxiety so i remember i went to do yoga and went into therapy and that was when i realized i need to watch my breathing and something as simple as watching my breathing has helped me to know myself Mm. because i know when my breathing is going up and i'm getting into a state of anxiety i know when to calm myself down. so when someone when an incident is happening and someone is trying to get me agitated or an issue is trying to get me agitated I go into my breathing state, I calm myself down and I ask myself, does this person deserve a reply? No. And I'm not going to reply. That well,
1: one of my key developments was the question, what do you need? Hmm. You know, when I feel anxious or frustrated or deliriously happy, <laughs> what do you need? What's happening right now? And it's like a moment to like bring me back into the room that has been really helpful in cultivating that self-awareness and by proxy self-care.
2: Yeah. And it's very powerful. For me, it was, um, who are you? Who are you? It was that question that I asked myself and I did a poem about who am I and you know, and when you started, you said you wanted to know things about BCA that a lot of people don't know. And for me, it's that thing that who am I? You know, a lot of people feel like, you know, when people feel that they own you because they've read your story, because they've seen you on social media, because, you know, they've hung out with you, because they've taken pictures with you. But when you come home, you realize that you don't even know yourself. Not Mm -hmm. to talk of those people that say that they know you. And the process of trying to know myself, trying to know my challenges, trying to know my shortcomings, you know, um, is helping me to maybe indirectly answer the question that what do I need in mm. life um. that's beautiful I
1: think this is a hypothesis I have tell me what you think that as a community as, as black queer people we're so used to defending ourselves mm-hmm. and our lives and our very existence that we have our armor on all the time and so, even amongst friends, we can be defensive before we're vulnerable.
2: That's true. That is very true, and that's what I talked about—that state of high um, hyper um, alertness. Um, say the, the same will go for women. Um, every minority, everybody on the margin—you know—because you're always picked on and that's why there's a lot of mental health issues around black people because unfortunately we always have to defend why we think the reason why we didn't get a job is because we're black and not because we're qualified mm. why we think you know the reason we didn't make a particular group or win a particular award is because we it's not because we're black but because we're qualified, but we know we're very qualified, we know we can do this job, we know we deserve the award, but why are we not getting it? That brings in self-doubt, that brings in, I don't have an alternative universe to operate because I don't have this talent, and then you start questioning yourself and questioning yourself. And one of the things I, I come into is to learn to cut things off. And to learn you know, to call off things. Right. And you know, say it's, it's it's not for me. And also to reprioritize whose report will I believe? And whose um, decision about my life matters? Um, so is it the people that want to give me an award or the lives that I have touched? Um, when the record is labeled where would I be measured? Will I be measured with an award at all of these gay awards and all of these awards? Or by that 17-year-old boy who stopped his attempt at suicide because it could relate to my story and my story Mm. can give that boy hope? And I will never know that boy, I will never know that girl. There's somewhere there and that thing is going on. And for me that is what is very, very important in, in... in what I do and so when I get this barrage of hatred of questioning and everything I remember that there's someone out there who needs me to be strong but also who needs to know that it's okay to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and that is why I would talk about my vulnerability and you know one of the one of the biggest problems we have as black white people is that vulnerability because we see it as a sign of weakness and because we're fighting against a system and not just people, it's a white system we're fighting against, now a white gay system that we're fighting against that is massive, it's got money behind it, it's got power behind it, it's got influence behind it. We can feel overwhelmed a lot of time and and because even as a community we question ourselves within ourselves. I know a lot of my black friends, I say, oh, why do you always go on about black? Why do you always go on about racism? Mm -hmm. Why do you always go on about gays? And these are black gay men. And Can't you find something else to do? And uh, and I just said like, you know, you don't get it because you think you can switch this thing up. And it's not that we don't see it, but we just don't want to get carried up in it. I thought, okay. Good luck to you. Mm -hmm. But someone has got to call it out.
1: Take me back to baby BC. (laughs) What is your earliest memory?
2: I think um, if I have to look at pictures, I remember it once my mom going through the photograph at home and seeing a picture of myself as a baby. <laughs> and it was so obvious I was going to be in trouble. <laughs> it, was so <laughs> so, it was so obvious the way I was looking and, um, and all those things. But I think my, my first recollection of myself um, was, was knowing as a little boy that I must have been a mistake.
1: That you must have been a mistake.:
2: Yeah. and that um, maybe my, most of my mom really wasn't expecting to have me. And that was very, very um, was very, very obvious in the way that she had related to me, the way she had um, interacted with me that she loved my brother more and she wanted my brother around more and and then I went into being alone and I spent a lot of time reading and trying to escape um, basically and um, but I really didn't make much of it until I was a bit older when once, I think I was in secondary school, I had a I had a confrontation with my mom and she said, you know, uh, you are a stubborn child that refused to get aborted in a way. And that stayed with me. It stayed with me so much because it felt like it defined me. Mm. And I lived my life around the fact that you know i thought i was never wanted but now it's very clear and the rate of love and affection that my brother was getting was very clear you know my brother was really really loved and um my everyone in the family uh, showed him so much affection and all those kind of things so that continues to affect me and then i discovered acting and dance um when i went to primary school and then i to see my mom's eyes every time I'm on the stage and all this kind of thing, and my mom is very, very happy with me. Um, when I do well academically, my mom is very happy with me. And so when I saw that, I gave a lot of my energy into that. So I focus more on my on my schoolwork. So I focus more on extracurricular activities in school just so that I could get closer. But, you know, they, can, they only happen <laughs> a few times in a year. So for the rest of the time, the attention is on my brother. And, um, and then I kind of then inside discovering myself. I was quite, you know, for my, for my age and for where I grew up, for my background, I was quite curious as, as, a, as a little boy. Uh, I, I know things. I could tell time by the, by the age five. Um, I started reading back when I was seven, so I was very like, yeah, and these were things that I do to escape, mm-hmm. and I think it's helped to shape my mind and you know formed me and helped me to understand the world that I, I I live or I will eventually live in. So those were the memories that I have, but one that was very interesting was when I, um, so my father is a Muslim my mother is a christian oh i didn't know that ah, so it's a very mixed family mm-hmm. that i come from and i practice both religions so one um one time i could be a christian another time i could be a muslim and in primary school i was um i was going to the quranic school and i was beaten at the, at the quranic school so badly because i wasn't catching up with my quran and um, on sunday we would go to church because my aunt would take us to church and so i stopped attending my islamic class In school, and my Islamic religious lecturer, who who was very, you know, masculine, macho, and controlling, was so upset, and I was flogged on the school assembly. I was about ten. I was flogged massively on the school assembly, and um, and I went home and I told my parents about what has happened. Nobody did anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody wanted to rescue me and I felt like this should never have happened to me and this would never happen to me again and I became a rebel from there on I was I was young and I was a rebel does that shape why you fight now yeah it does and the fact that I have nothing to lose you know when people say every time people ask a question about What were you thinking when you came out on TV about your family and the rest? And I said, well, I had nothing to lose. They were never, never really, really part of my life. I see them as my family because that's what they are. But I don't have any intimate connection with them. And for that reason, there was no need for me to feel emotionally guilty or emotionally indebted to them for coming out. So when a lot of my friends says, oh, if I come out, my parents won't like it. If I do this, my parents won't do this. I, I I have no regrets. I have no regret to feel like that because there was no solidarity from them. And it got worse when they started realizing that I really didn't like girls. So I was completely just shut off. And so that helped me um, to see myself differently and do things differently.
1: I think that's such a powerful moment. This, you know, many would take this rejection and not be able to recover from that. I mean, we see it every day, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of people don't recover from that type of rejection. And so it's very powerful and speaks volumes about you, that you were able to see that as an opportunity to define yourself for yourself, which I think is an opportunity that a lot of us miss. Is not that it's not there, but that we don't take seriously that opportunity, that that rejection then becomes a moment for us to become ourselves.
2: Yeah, um, I think I would say that I, I was lucky uh, because of the books that I was reading and and I, and I just think I am just meant to be what I am mm. in a way I think I don't think I have as much control over how my life journey has come because I sometimes I sit back and I'm like how did you how did I get here you know can I recollect Can I go back in town and say how did I get here? And a lot of time, I don't know how I got here. Um, I've, I've lost consciousness in the way of this journey. And, um, but I'm also grateful that life has its own plan for me. And as kind of like, whether I'm conscious or I'm not conscious, whether I'm there or I'm not there, life just says, you know, this is where I wanted to be." And many a times, I get discovered by random people. You know as an actor I was discovered by a random person as a public speaker I was discovered by a random person as a writer I was discovered by someone who saw a rubbish I've written and felt like there is something behind it that I can develop and so that is how my life has, has gone just one person just coming around and saying oh I, I, I believe in you as as a model I have developed because somebody just said mm. You know, I see what other people cannot see. I have failing to see and I want to invest in that. And that is how my life has been. So I would say that I'm I'm fortunate because when I talk about the fact that boys like me don't sit in a house like this, boys like me do have boys like you as friends. And people felt like, Oh, but it's true I was I was brought up in the midst of gone, drugs and you know teenage pregnancy and emptiness and everything Uh and I look back where I am now and I kind of like how did I get here and and I think is whether I'm conscious of it or not is because I've refused to let where I am coming from to define where I will go or how far I will go in life and for me have to say that again Say it again. (laughs) You know, it's because I have refused to let where I am coming from to define where or who I will be.
1: That's really beautiful. So much of our journeys, I think, is about coming to this place. Right? And not that we... I don't think that we ever really get to the mountaintop. I don't think that...
2: And I don't think we would ever get to the mountaintop. No,
1: I don't think so. But I think that... You know the world around us. Oh, I feel really emotional.
2: Oh.
1: <laughs> the world around us doesn't always um, act like we should be here, but in that, you know, or in spite of the world that tells us that we don't deserve to be here, we continue to come together like we are now. Hmm. We continue to fight alongside each other people like you you know are showing the rest of us that we can speak up and we can be angelic troublemakers and we can demand the lives that we deserve and I think that that's so powerful and yeah so I'm just reveling in that
2: you know we when I look at everyone that I've come across in life even people that I don't like um, I see um, a collection of stories waiting to be told. Um, I see the beauty in human nature. And um, we are an amazing people, you know, whether we want to accept it or not. And we will have a story to tell. And we all have a journey and I love to know the journey of people mm. you know when you when you face that you know crisis um, and I was discussing with my husband at home and I, I remember I was telling talking to my husband and he was like and I was like you know this guy is going through what he's going through and I just hope that he can recollect reconnect with his journey mm. because no matter how many wonderful messages that I send to you or Lady Phil sent to you or Ricky or every other network that you have that they are sending to you it is your journey mm-hmm. your story that will get you up and going and I just said that you know I wish he can find himself in this crisis mm. and reconnect with that self with that person that it is Josh mm. and look in the mirror and say Josh you know what, fuck it you are amazing and this is part of your journey and you're going to be better off than this and that is very important as part of our journey but again, going back to how we started it's about self-awareness you have to be aware and be appreciative of the little things I posted something on Facebook once I said, I have learned a the act of thank you, subtle but it's very powerful and it's giving me the opportunity to wine and dine with the most powerful people in the world so much so that when I'm in their house and I'm served a drink I get up to pick it and I look into their eyes of the wait and say thank you Mm -hmm. and they are seeing that and they are saying wow Mm -hmm. and it creates opportunities but it's not just about that but you're taking a time and a moment out in your life to recognize that person that has offered you a service and say thank you and in that moment you are connecting with their humanity and that is connecting with you you value them and they will value you most of the problems that we have in the world today It's because we do not value humanity. Mm -hmm. So that when someone says, you know, say nasty things about the Mexicans, about the black, about women, and the rest, it's because that person has failed to connect with the humanity of the people that they are bringing down. And the moment we do that, you will see a lot of change in life. What do you hope for? I don't think what I hope for is possible. Really? I don't think so. Um, I don't really think so. Um, so, I kind of like think of what is realistic. I think what I hope for is a world where we don't have to worry about sexuality, we don't have to worry about race, we don't have to worry about gender. You know, nobody will get paid more than the other person because they're either they're black or they're women or they're Muslim or they're Christian or they're men or something like that. You know that is hope. That is my hope. But is it realistic? No. I think injustice is part of human nature. And injustice will continue. Um, but what I feel is realistic is the fact that there will continuously be um, a group of angelic troublemakers who will refuse to allow the status quo to continue, who will be out to dismantle patriarchy, and systemic oppression of racism, of sexism, of ableism, of you know xenophobia. You know, people who will say, not on my watch. And people who will say, not in my name. People who will stand up, irrespective of their religious belief, You know, irrespective of gender, irrespective of their sexuality, irrespective of their race, who will say, this What should not allow this to go on. And that, for me, is what I think is realistic. And for those people to leave, there must be, for the oppressor, to operate, there must be the oppressed. And that's the way the world is going to be. It's not going to change. But I hope realistically that because we know the world is not going to change, we're not going to keep quiet about it.
1: You know, Paulo, Paulo Freire, the Brazilian yeah. educator and philosopher, and then Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he talks about, you know, the. We are the subjects of the transformation, but we are also the transformation. And actually, the oppressor is never going to turn around and f- liberate us. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> we have to do the liberating, but in order to do that, we have to try and empathize with the oppressor, <laughs> as it were, which is something akin to what um, Bayard Rustin says.:,
2: you know, you know, understanding the oppressor, it's fundamental in empowering yourself i understand very well what the people that don't like me and why they don't like me mm. and in that way it doesn't mean that i'm limiting myself because i'm not going to limit myself but it helps me to get to their vulnerability in a way to empower myself and people will say this is manipulative this is bad but the the reality is that it's a game of chess, and you have to be smart about it. And today, I get invited to all of these events, and like last night that I was, it was predominantly um, white men, gay men there, and I kind of asked myself, a question: What am I doing here? Hmm. What am I doing here? Okay, I'm here because I really want to know what makes these people tick. But at the same time, do I really want to be here? And after some time, I left. I left quietly because it's not for me. It's not my kind of audience. And when I speak up, I know know, that the the oppressed or the symbol of the oppression don't like to hear me, Mm -hmm. but also can't shut me.
1: Yes, yes and
2: so I use that opportunity to say what I have to say when I have hold the microphone or when I have the platform and you know many times people have come and say oh maybe if you don't say it that way we'll be here and I would tell them you're not the best person to tell me how to say <laughs> my message and that's why I don't blame people when they find a way to to express their struggle it is not my place and you know we do this Um this struggle um, monitoring of each other where we tell people don't say things this way don't do things this way it's not my place to tell someone how to cry Mm -hmm. if the way they are reacting to an event is the best way they can react to an event the best thing I can do is to support them or keep quiet Mm -hmm. you know and and that has been you know the way that I've approached a lot of things that I do and understanding that the way that I will react to something, it's going to be different from the way someone else will and it is not in my place to tell that person how to go about it.
1: Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? What would you tell baby BC?
2: And that you... That I do... Understand, I, I understand why you wanted to come into suicide at 17. Um... I understand why you were overdosing. I understand why you had codependency issues. Um, that it's okay, and, um, but you're stronger than you can ever imagine. And, um, and that, you know, all of these things that you're going through um, are going to shape your future. Um but if there's another thing I would have want I would have loved to change uh, my younger self is the fact that um I would have loved to hate my mom less um I think I realize and I realize i not that she doesn't deserve it, but do I have to give it to her. And then I realized I don't have to hate her. I don't have to be angry at her. I don't have to fight her. Because I realized that many times that we've had physical exchanges. Um, They shouldn't have happened. And I look back now and I regret the moment I grabbed her clothes because um, she's done something. and I do not have any other way of reacting but to be violent towards her. And I shouldn't do that to my mom even for whatever she is, and, you know, it's about learning to say, boy, walk away, walk away. And I think those are the things that I will learn, uh, that it's okay, depression is okay, and um, you can deal with it, and not be scared, Um, or wouldn't have fallen in love with some men, because I have codependency issues. And they don't deserve it, and shouldn't have fallen in love with them. But I find myself in love with them. That father destroy me, you know, knowing all about all of these things and uh, the things I would tell little BC. I
1: know they are one of my most freeing experiences. <clears throat> I hadn't been speaking to my dad for about a year. I was like really fed up with. I was really fed up with the man he is. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And I thought. And so I decided to stop talking to him. I thought, you don't deserve to have me in your life. And so therefore, I'm not going to be in your life anymore. And after a year, I realized, this is only damaging me. This is causing me a great deal of pain. And so being able to let that go and to rekindle that relationship with him on my terms Mm. was, wow. And I think I would... Tell my younger self that you're never going to get what you're looking for from him, but you do have what you need inside,
2: yeah. It, and that is a very powerful place to be, you know, to be able to say that what you're looking for in that place is not there, mm. but it's here, mm-hmm. it's in your heart, it's in you because you know, um, I I was young when "Hero" came out by Mariah Carey. Then comes
1: along. It, It's modern.
2: It's modern song for me. Really? And I say it's really modern a song for me. And the song came out at one of my most troubled moments in life. And um, and knowing that I'm the hero that I'm looking for, you know, like I'm the one that. I've got a solution to what I'm looking for. It's not in my mother, it's not in my father, it's not in my brother, it's not in my lover. It's in me. Mm. It was very liberating. It was really, 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 really liberating. And, you know, I, I sing that song when, I, when I'm down. And then, you know, um, Whitney Houston came out with I Look To You. And I Look To You was those sounds a little bit churchy, a little bit religious, but when I talk about looking to you. It's about looking inside of me. And I think we all need to do more of that. We all need to look inside ourselves. We all need to check ourselves. We all need to, you know, it's like, a, like an MOT, You know, check mm. our reaction to things, check our reaction to ourselves, to people that are around us. And um, it helps us you know it helps us to be a better person
1: i i do think it sounds terribly you know generalizing but i do think i mean cuz i i love being black and gay and being here in this place and i think that despite what the world might tell us about being black or gay or black and gay this is the best place to be it is. I, I i feel like We get to make so many decisions that many don't get to make by virtue of our circumstance, by virtue of having to figure this out for ourselves in a way that keeps us
2: alive Mm. and that keeps us healthy Mm. and that keeps us thriving. Mm. You see, I'm the same age as my husband. The things that I know that he doesn't know. Mm. And now he... He kind of like he's trying to do catch-up and the reason why he doesn't know all those things is because he's a white gay man who is extremely privileged mm. and so when I tell him about life experiences he doesn't know that because he's been shielded from all those kind of things because of his race because he's a man and all those kind of things and you're right but our experiences in life whether as black or as gay or as a black gay man put us in a position where we can see things differently mm. and we can know it when before they even get here and we can plan on how to deal with them and whether that is good or bad that is open for conversation but the point is that we're smarter we're more at a lot we're wiser we situate things better we can we can understand coded words mm. And hence, we relate better with the society, with the situation around us. And we make more informed decisions about things and people and events that happen in our life. And that, for me, is a wonderful place to be. It's really, really a brilliant place to be.
1: A quote from Jane Fonda... Just popped into my head randomly. (laughs) So I want to share with you. I don't think it's actually from I don't think she actually said it. I I think she got it from somewhere else. But the moment I thought I was broken, I realized I was broken open. Hmm. I don't know, I just thought that was kind of Mm.
2: And I think that would really relate to you and that incident that happened.
1: Someone actually sent that to me and was like, you're gonna be fine. But and and when and I say this for a point to to relate back to what you said when she she said I thought I was broken I was actually broken open I started crying because I thought that's how I feel Mm. I feel exposed I feel humiliated I feel vulnerable but I feel Mm. awake I feel alive I can feel the blood pulsing through my veins I can smell everything I'm alert I'm awake and I say that to say that both your experience, life experience, and my life experience and that of actually many queer people of color. We, we're con- we we're continually broken, I think, and then putting ourselves back together. But in those moments of, of breaking, we're opening up and things are flooding in and we're keeping those things, the good things, as they come in, I
2: think. And the, and the, the, the you know, there's a... Um, there's a friend of mine who's a musician and while you're talking about that brokenness she has a song and that song just fits into it and I think the title of the song is either human or light and she said and we're all broken so that light can come in Mm -hmm. and you know I, I love that song and I always tell her that Larry you have no idea how powerful this song is that we are all broken, so that light can come in, and that light is the flood. The flooding, they they illuminate us. They add perspective to who we are, and they position us in a way to be able to deal with the challenges that life will throw at us. And that brokenness is important. Mm-hmm. It's And it is what we get in most times when you are in the margin, when you are the minority. That is, that that brokenness is what you get. Because you don't get that brokenness when you are in the mainstream. You get it when you are in in the margin. And it becomes, you know, a process of rebirth for you. You're reborn. Mm -hmm. You're exposed to things that otherwise people wouldn't know anything about. Yeah, so it's um yeah. You know, I, I I wouldn't be who I am today if I was not broken. And the lights that has that have come in over the years have made me what I am today. Okay. And you know, your experience is part of your you being broken mm. and how you put yourself together will glue. And with whatever you have around you, with friendship, with love, with tears, with laughter, is what's going to make the beautiful person that will come out of that brokenness.
1: You know, the light in you just kind of pours out. It really does. I think that's why you're an angelic troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) Because your smile... Is so illuminating, oh, thank and you. because your face is that of an angel, and so I think when I think of Biscellini, <laughs> the angelic troublemaker, I think of this little black cherub
2: <laughs> with a halo.
1: Yeah, with a little halo that he takes <laughs> off and throws at people's
2: throats. <laughs> and there goes their head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah,
1: so I think um, this has been such a beautiful conversation. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you so much. For Busy
1: Alimi is the founder of the Busy Alimi Foundation, which advocates for the rights and dignity of LGBTQ people in Nigeria by addressing public opinion and accelerating social acceptance. You can find out more about his work and support the cause at Busy Alimi Foundation.org. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. I would love to hear from you. If you have feedback about Busy Being Black or know of someone I should be in conversation with, please get in touch on busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. And remember, your support doesn't cost any money. Please rate, review, and share this podcast and follow at underscore busybeingblack on Twitter and Instagram, where you can join the conversation using the hashtag busybeingblack. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black and Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass, busy-being-black beats. I I'm Anushka Astana, and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage Every day. From Hartlepool.
2: I mean the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point.
0: To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats.
1: We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts.